Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we are speaking with Dr. Earl Metzler. As the chief executive officer for both the Hampstead and Timberlane school districts, this superintendent is charged with managing all administrative and leadership services and relies on the expertise and support of other administrators that comprise the superintendent's leadership team, the assistant superintendent's leadership team, and the SAU leadership team where data-driven decisions and initiatives are made and programs and systems are developed, examined, and improved. The combined enrollment of both school districts totals almost 5,200 students. Since his hiring in 2012, Dr. Metzler has been persistent and consistent in his pursuit to improve the rigor, accountability, evaluation, and support necessary to increase student achievement. Welcome, Dr. Earl Metzler. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for reaching out and for the invitation to participate in this today. Well, we're so happy to have you on our podcast. Are you ready to pour into our listeners? I'm absolutely ready, so thank you. Perfect. Now, Earl, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? Great. Yeah. So I, I started, you know, pretty much the traditional route. You know, I obviously went to college and I went and, and thought it was like grade 13. I was there to play football and baseball and to continue on with my education. And I was recruited to be a teacher. I always enjoyed coaching and I always enjoyed children and working with them. And so I had an opportunity to be a teacher. I got a job just outside of Boston, six miles south in Quincy, Massachusetts. I spent seven or eight years as a classroom teacher, um, all middle school age, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. And the school was a school that needed some focus, some vision, some restructuring, mostly around student management, really behavior management. So mm-hmm. I got tapped on the shoulder and asked, would I be interested in being the assistant principal to try to get some structure into the school? Did that for two years and then was quickly named principal, began restructuring the school with a real student focus, a real kids first focus. We really changed the way people saw the students and the staff at that particular school. And then after 10 years as a principal at the middle school, I moved on to a really high-performing high school in the same district, North Quincy High School, a school that was rich and proud of student achievement and, and certainly many other uh, awards and accolades. But, you know, it's funny, as you think about change, you know, making change in a school that doesn't work is a lot easier than making change in a school that's already good. Hmm. Can you school, tell us about that? That was really some challenging work because, you know, when you go into a school and, you know, how do you go from good to great or how do you make a good school better, convincing people that work there that there are other ways to do things. Sometimes for lifelong learners, we learn to learn. And then sometimes we have to unlearn and then relearn. And we were able to make some significant changes there, especially around the uh, advanced placement program. And we were able to, you know, obviously uh, increase student achievement there in a different level. So, you know, convincing staff that's already good at what they do, that there are ways to get better is, I think, far more challenging work 
than in a school that's struggling and in desperate need of change. And from there, I was fortunate enough to move 50, 60 miles north, just over the border here in southern New Hampshire. I was appointed superintendent of school seven years ago. I have two districts, uh, about 5,000 students, $100 million budget, just to give an idea of what the challenges are here. The districts are different in size. One is Timberlane, it's about 3,500 students. Uh, the other district is Hampstead. Uh, we sent our high school students to a private school run with public funds, which was another interesting concept to me that I was unaware of. And uh, that's the job I'm currently in. I'm superintendent of schools here at SAU 55, you know, proudly serving uh, the towns of Hampstead, Plastow, Atkinson, Danville, and Sandow. Well, that's quite a journey. And I know that you're very busy. So I really appreciate the time you're taking out for us. And as you were talking about your journey, you said you went from coaching to teaching. Tell us a bit about that, your transition from coach to teacher. And did that help you in this whole journey? Absolutely. I think when we think about coaching and mentoring, you know, I really went from, you know, athlete to coach slash teacher at the same mm. time. But even in my current work, you know, as I edit doctoral work, I consult, I coach, I mentor, um, I help write school improvement plans for schools that are struggling. You know, part of it is modeling and actually kind of breaking things down, if you will, so that people can break the work down to see that the challenges are not insurmountable, that there are things that you can do to get better, that sometimes the work appears to be so overwhelming, but with a good coach, with a good mentor, if you can break it down, it's almost like modifying work, which I always said, you know, in terms of my work with special needs students, you know, if modifications are good for the special needs students, modifications are good for all students. Mm -hmm. I think the same is true about coaching. Sometimes you have to take the time to break things down and not that every recipe will deliver the same outcomes, but taking the opportunity to reflect and, and certainly, uh, look at some good practices to put into play, I think uh, that really always kind of moves the needle in a positive direction. Thank you. Now, how would you describe your leadership style? It's always a great question, great interview question too, because people are interviewing for a job and they want to kind of know what they're getting. And mm-hmm. So I really thought about this in great detail and I've really looked at it in, in really four components. You know, the first is a traditional leader. Traditional in a lot of ways when it comes to safety and security you know, there's a real buck stops here. You know, people want a decision. They want to know what the decision is. They want to know what the plan is to execute. So I'm very traditional in nature when it comes to really the safety and security of both staff and students. You know, then I transitioned into participatory. You know, I've always thought that anything that's going to touch the classroom, touch the classroom teacher or the paras or people that work directly with students, you know, as a former teacher or as a former coach, I didn't always want the person that I reported to dictating the way we went about our business, at least not without some input. So very participatory when it comes to anything that's going to touch the classroom, especially a classroom teacher. Consultative when it comes to things that I don't know. I don't need to be the smartest guy in the room. Uh, There are plenty of things that I don't know. So uh, when there's times when we need to consult an expert on a particular issue, we certainly know that that's the direction we would take. And finally, in consensus, every now and again, uh, it's important to know what the majority of the people would like what they can live with. You know, consensus is tricky to me though, because I spent some time early on in my career in a school that they spent more time trying to define what consensus was than actually getting the work done. You know, one more than half is tricky. You know, uh, is that consensus or is it a fist of five? You know, how do you feel about certain things? So what I do with each one of those, when I think about a challenge or something that's put in front of me, I think about what kind of leadership application, if you will, should be selected for that particular challenge. And really, when you explain it to people that in this particular issue, I'm going to take a traditional route, or you're going to participate, and I'm going to be looking for feedback and input, or we're going to go outside and consult, or we're just going to get a fist of five kind of 
to feel where everybody feels about this. What can we all live with? Explaining those kind of decision-making processes from a leadership perspective has always served me well. You know, getting buy-in or obviously taking stock, those are important. So really, it's really specific to the particular challenge at hand. And I try to select what I think would be the best application to deliver on the best outcome. Yeah, you hit on quite a few uh, different types of leadership, and it all makes sense. And I love the way that you reflect on your past, and that informs what you're doing now. For instance, you thought about how you felt when you had a specific type of leader that spoke into you or was your leader. Now, how important is it, Earl, to develop leaders in your district? There isn't anything more important, especially in a district this particular size. Now, I was lucky or fortunate, if you will, uh, in the Quincy Public School. I had great role models or leaders as a young teacher, Mm -hmm. young educational leadership kind of model to follow. So I watched that particular school district really develop a farm team, if you will, you know, people that are ready to step up and step into roles. And so, you know, then I go 60 miles north to this particular room and they thought I was going to bring a lot of people with me, but, you know, people weren't moving. So I had to really do a really deep dive and find out, you know, what the talent pool was here and start to develop, you know, some young talent as retirements or or people move on to different challenges in their careers. You know, we've been fortunate. We have quite a few uh, administrative positions here. And um, I'm always proud to say that we typically have a really good internal candidate for almost anyone. And I think it's like a for us, by us. We mm-hmm. started this uh, executive leadership academy. And so mm. we uh, begin with the end in mind, or we, we think about the future as we develop some of the topics. Um, and it's interesting, some of the leadership training that we develop, we triangulate that information from surveys from our teachers and paras that we get from the trenches about what they think the leaders in our district the skills and abilities that need to be enhanced or things that we need to get better at. And we develop not only the leaders of the future, the current leaders as well, because not everybody's um, great at everything. So, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's evaluation or whether it's classroom management or, or discipline, you know, whether it's appreciation of diversity, whatever it may be, we make sure that that leadership academy um, touches on those. So we develop the talent so we, that we have people ready to step in when those opportunities provide themselves. I think that's pretty smart. Now, was this under your watch? In other words, when you started, was there an executive leadership academy? No, I brought that concept. That was something that I had learned in Chicago public schools, doing some work with a superintendent's academy, uh, and they had a leadership academy. It was really just preparation for the top job. And so for me, I, I thought this is really good training for all of our leadership jobs. And I wanted to kind of formalize a way to let the people in the trenches know that we're listening to them and we'll develop skills that you think we're not as good as we should be on. Mm -hmm. Really what motivated that was my pillars. I had three pillars. It was really accountability, rigor, and evaluation. And uh, listening to the teachers, they talked about a fourth leg to that chair and it was about support. And so what would support look and feel like? And so they were clear about the kinds of support they needed. And I needed to make sure that the leaders that we had supporting them had the skills needed to actually provide that kind of support. So, you know, I'm appreciative, had the kind of the concept, but the motivation really came from the trenches to get our leaders that kind of training so they could really provide the support so that we could deliver on those desired outcomes. I think that's so encouraging. I think that's so positive. And it's a way to think about leaving a legacy as well, not just for yourself, but a legacy in leadership in education that is so needed. A good one. (laughs) So Earl, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? There's a book that's written by uh, Robert Greenleaf, and it's called Servant Leadership. And, And that really speaks to me. But 
know, as I thought about quotes that really have struck me over the years, one comes from Gandhi and said, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. Mm. So we're in the people business. Mm -hmm. And so we serve others, you know, we serve families and students and staff, especially in the leadership role. So that Gandhi quote stuck with me. And another one speaks to people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So for me, I come across these things when I'm right. reading and I just write them down as reminders, you know, that you're on the right path in terms of, you know, servant leadership and serving others and also being sensitive to the fact that people need to know you care. That's the most yes. important thing. Yes. And when you think about students, that certainly rings so true. Now, can you tell us about a leader who inspired you? There's been so many. Um, it would take me back to, these aren't famous people, but these are the people that have touched my lives in a lot of ways. You know, I worked for, you know, several great superintendents and they certainly inspired me. But one was an assistant superintendent. His name was Dr. Carmen Mariano. And he was just someone that was a confidant uh, right from the first day I started teaching. He always made me want to be the best version of myself, um, mm. made me extremely reflective and made me a, a reflective practitioner. That wasn't as instinctive as perhaps it should have been. It, you know, you almost have to create these own vehicles for yourself. Um, so he really helped develop those kinds of habits. They were really healthy habits for me, whether I was successful and I reflected on what made me successful, whether I was unsuccessful. And to really look at those unsuccessful moments as information, not as disappointments, just information to yeah. help you get better, you know, to use that as a motivator for the next time. So I love that. So use unsuccessful moments as inspiration. Correct. Love it. I'm writing that down. And I'm quoting you. Oh, that's, that's kind. <laughs> All right. So, Earl, what's the best advice you've ever received? Uh, the best advice I've ever received, really, it was from my father when I was really little, and it, it really stuck with me. I like to talk, and I certainly like to engage, and I like to lead, and, and that hasn't been any different. But he made it very clear to me at a young age, you have two ears, you have one mouth, <laughs> and you should be listening twice as much as you speak. Yes. And so I try to, and many times, especially meetings, and a lot of times when you're hearing things that aren't really making a lot of sense and you feel the need to jump in, I try to listen. I try to understand perspective. I try to understand someone's angle or how they feel about something. And I try to remind myself about that. I should be listening twice as much as I'm speaking. I think that's great advice. It's one of the reasons why I started this podcast, to practice my listening. <laughs> oh, good point. All right. So what does it mean to you to have a good team and how do you build and sustain one? A good team to me, I look at different components of, about what a good team would be. And I think one of the characteristics I think that gets overlooked sometimes is a team needs to be adaptive. It needs mm -hmm. to be able to change with the times. It needs to be flexible. It can't be rigid. They can't mm -hmm. confuse grit with rigidness. It needs to have high energy. It needs to be enthusiastic. The team needs to have a vision. Kind of needs to know where it's going. You know, what are the desired outcomes? Um, mm -hmm. Begin with the end in mind. I like to have teammates that are selfless, you know, that they put service before self, that they think mm -hmm. of others, especially um, showing that they care. And really a team that's committed, one that does have grit, that's committed to delivering on those desired outcomes. And I think the other things, the trust, the loyalty, those kind of components, sometimes we take for granted, but those are also important as well. And I think the team with good leadership, with a good plan, a good vision, mission, if you will, deliver on desired outcomes when they stay committed. Hey leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. If you haven't downloaded your copy of the Master Leadership Journal, go to masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ to get instant access and begin growing your leadership with questions that have been curated by top level leaders. I've also included some cool extras for you at masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ. 
you know, I talk a lot about trust because I believe that it is the foundation of building good schools and good leadership. For you, when you think about trust, how do you build trust in a team? You have to earn trust. You can't demand trust. So it doesn't really matter who has the big desk, who has the little desk. It's a series of exercises where I believe you demonstrate trust and loyalty. And I think obviously it's uh, communication and it's two-way. You know, I've always been a big trust but verify guy. So I trust people, but I verify. And I think it's important in terms of the outcomes could have a positive or negative impact on lots of people. I think it's important to make sure that you verify. But trust is one of those things that it's over time you earn it. I think you demonstrate you lead by example. If you follow through, if you give your word, those sorts of things, I think are all things that contribute to building a real trustful kind of relationship, whether it's individual relationships or it's a relationship with a community or a staff or certainly um, students for that matter. Yeah. And I think it is smart to trust, but also to verify it. So thank you for that. Now, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it shaped your life? The one that comes to mind and at a very, very young age, I had a bout with cancer. Mm. And so it was a scare, of course, as it would be for anybody. I went into an operation thinking it was one thing and woke up and was given some pretty scary information. So mm. I was very young. That was over 30 years ago. And there's lots of things we can talk about here. We can talk about grit and fight and battle and, and survive and all those sorts of things. But the message that I took from it was time is precious. Mm. So I don't waste my time. And then I'll even take that a step further. I don't waste other people's time. So yeah. I think that that was really an important message. You know, there's not an endless amount of time for individuals on this planet. You need to make your time count. That's really how I've tried to live my life. I've tried to make my time matter. I know what I do on a daily basis. I know it matters. And so I need to make sure that I value that time and don't waste it. And even though it was a difficult situation, that concept that time is precious, it's great to get that when you're young. I agree. You know, I, I look back and it really defined me. I apologize in advance for the sports analogies, but I use them occasionally. Swing while the bat's in your hand. You know, opportunities, they don't come around as often as maybe you would like sometimes, and you need to take advantage of the opportunities. You need to make a difference when you can. I think of our work in public education, and I define it as urgent work that needed to be done yesterday. Mm -hmm. You know, that every day matters, and we need to take care of things now. It's not something we can take care of down the road. And I love how you also value other people's time. So I appreciate that. Now, speaking of time, what do you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities you have? You'll see some themes here. I mean, for me, it's really being a reflective practitioner. I take the time to reflect daily, whether it's at the beginning of the day or whether it's at the end of the day. And then I look for um, things that will inspire me on a daily basis. For instance, it could be podcasts, it could be listening, it could be reading, it could be watching. I look for things to inspire me. A lot of times it's celebrating success. So in a busy day, for instance, today I had a student returning to one of our schools that had been out for quite some time in a hospital and uh, today was his first day back. And, and in between getting back to do this and today's voting day here on the budget and, and some other political things and and I had some staffing things that, you know, I made sure to swing by that school to say hello and to welcome back. I think that was inspiring to me. You know, I looked forward to that today. I knew today was going to be his first day back and I wanted to shoot over there. Some things are little things, some things are big things and inspiration is personal. I think anytime we can help inspire others, it really is feeding your own spirit in terms mm -hmm. of inspiration. And there's a special connection that you had with that student as well, having gone through similar situations. You know, you connect with different people for different mm -hmm. reasons, you know, um, and this is the social media thing. I have quite a few connections on, on Twitter. I don't use Facebook. A lot of the students, we connect through Twitter. And a lot of times it's about snow days, you know, whether or not we're <laughs> going to have school or not. But uh, 
it could be about school lunch or anything else that's really important to them. And it gives me a different lens to look at things through. And it's very mm-hmm. helpful in terms of improving the day-to-day operations or daily life, really, for students here mm-hmm. on campus. And you know what, Earl? It's interesting because for someone who's driven, oftentimes we don't stop to celebrate successes. I love that you mentioned that here. Even as busy as you are and all the responsibilities you have, you highlighted as something so important. And I think you've really nailed that. Well, thanks. I mean, I'll go back to, you know, Dr. Mariano again as a young teacher and and wanting to be an assistant principal. And and I remember him telling me, you know, you need to take time because you're going to get bogged down with so many other things. One is to celebrate. and Two is to make sure you take some time to do some of your own personal reading Mm because you need to feed your own spirit if you don't feed your spirit, you won't be able to feed anybody else's. And so those are things that just really stuck with me over the years. And, you know, there'll be periods of time where I don't take my own advice. And then I reflect and realize that I didn't do quite what I had hoped to do on a daily basis. And that's part of that reflection, really. Now, can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? You know, greatest successes. I always think of that. And a lot of times you're thinking about some program that really delivered on great results or a school that won an award or that. And I really thought that those were all like kind of one-offs in in a lot of ways. So for me, anytime, and this is something I'd like to see every day, you know, there are mindsets in public education. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, unfortunately we work with some people that think that you have to be born smart, that you can't get smart. Mm -hmm. So my greatest successes, and I think doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people is every day when I notice that somebody now has shifted from the oh, you don't have to be born smart, you can get smart, that all kids given equal access to the curriculum. And we talk about equity versus equality and making sure that we provide the resources and support. I think, you know, over my career, that's one of those things that I think of as an ongoing thing that I like to celebrate because it's just so powerful because we live in a society sometimes where not everybody gets the opportunities to be successful or they're told that they can't be successful. And when I see people's mindsets shift and help all kids, I think that's it. You know, for me, I'll go all the way back to that middle school that I talked about. You know, that was a school that was looked at by the community where that's where all the dumb, tough kids go and that school will never be any good. We were in the bottom of the queue, you know, but we changed our place in the queue. We went right up and was competing with one of the best middle schools in the city and people started to look and see that school differently. And I'll send it back to that mind shift that, yeah, the kids in that school can get smart when we provide them with the resources and do a good job leading the learning and developing people that believe they can get smart and believe in themselves. And so for me, I feel like that's something that as I look back daily or as I look back over a career, it's something I'm very proud of. Now, you were a principal when you started at that district or that school? I started as a teacher in that school and uh, taught there for eight years, then became the assistant principal for two years. Then I was the principal there for 10 years Mm -hmm. before I moved on to the high school position. Now, what would you tell a teacher who's in that same position today? Most teachers, they start and they just have big hearts and they care, but sometimes it's difficult. What's something that you would tell them? First of all, you kind of do your own taking stock about philosophically where you stand. But, you know, as a young teacher uh, and you come in enthusiastic, I would say any challenge and any challenge in my life that I was unsuccessful in a reflective moment, I asked myself two questions. Did I work hard enough and did I want it bad enough? And more times than not, I can associate my failure or lack of success in a particular area with one of those two. So I would talk to a young teacher about developing grit not giving up on students, you know, believing that all students can get smart. You will feel the greatest amount of personal joy when someone that you know was heading down the wrong road and you put them on a better road or you got them to believe in themselves or they were able to achieve at levels that they never thought were possible. 
I think that's what makes what we do the greatest job on the face of the earth. We get rewarded every day with student success stories. I would tell them, celebrate those. Spend your time and energy celebrating those things. But also, don't let yesterday use up too much time of today, meaning time is precious. You know, so, you know, you can reflect and you can celebrate, but you have work to do. Mm-hmm. And so there's a balance there that you need to make sure that you take the time to think about it because one can really start to take over one or the other. You can mm-hmm. forget about what you've done and not celebrate or get too caught up in the past and not be ready for the present. And how important is it, especially during this time where you're starting off as a teacher, if you think back at what you went through, how important is it to have a coach or a mentor? I think it's probably the most important thing. What I tried to do is I tried to triangulate what you're talking about in the sense of making sure that new teachers, people in our district or in our school, had a mentor that helped in the evaluation process. Now, a lot of times people will have a mentoring program, but it would be separate. And my thing was when I went in to evaluate a teacher, especially a young teacher, and I was looking for particular skills or looking for particular competencies, and I didn't see something. For whatever reason, I wasn't provided the opportunity. I loved being able to talk to the mentor about it and said, now what I want you to do is work with them on this. Now invite me back when you believe I can come back and see. And it could be something as simple as, well, we were looking for use of technology and they didn't really use any technology in their lesson. Can you invite me back just so we can see some competency there? Or whatever. It could be around classroom management, instructional strategies, practices. And when I wrote up my evaluations, I made sure those mentors took a look at them. And I said, if this is not accurate, because you know, me being in there three, five, six times, and I'm being generous to myself, you know, what if it's once, you know, to take a snapshot of somebody's work over 180 days, isn't really fair. So I think a lot of times having that other set and certainly um, someone that's advocating for them and an opportunity to look over the evaluation to say that this is a fair, reflective evaluation of the work, I think served everybody better, especially the teacher that was looking to get better at what they do. And it says a lot about you as a leader. You're not there to catch them. You're there to support them and to help them grow. Well, that's a good point. You know, I tell young people when we hire them, I said, listen, we thought you were great when we interviewed you, right? So if you didn't have a good year, it's one of two things, right? We didn't either support you well enough or I got it wrong when we hired you. See, mm-hmm. I find young people that we bring in are assets to the district, the community, not liabilities. So we need to protect our assets. We need to make sure that we're providing them the kind of professional development and training mm-hmm. and support that they need to be successful. And more times than not, you look at your legacy over a period of time, you can only say, well, I inherited this, I inherited that. I think it's your responsibility to develop teaching staff, just like it's your responsibility mm-hmm. to develop the supports to that staff, which is the leadership, you know, and that obviously as all helps um, deliver mm-hmm. the desired outcomes. And I love how you as a leader take responsibility for whatever the outcome is. You take responsibility for failure and you give yeah. everybody else credit for success. That's how it works, right? Well, you know, that's how we want it to work. It doesn't always work that way, Earl. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> but I do love that. Now you mentioned lifelong learning. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning now? Lifelong learning, you know, you never have it complete, right? So for me, it's the ability to learn and then unlearn. You know, sometimes you may develop some bad practices or strategies or skills or some that become antiquated. So you need to unlearn those and then you need to be able to relearn. It really comes down to being open-minded, understanding that one size doesn't fit all. You have to think of many different ways to allow kids to show what they know, to make sure that you provide those vehicles or opportunities for kids to thrive and be successful. I think that's true for people as individuals as well. I mean, you need to take the time. So, you know, you go through, you know, your formalized schooling and then you go to college and maybe you get your doctorate or whatever, but you still look for opportunities to learn. Um, mm-hmm. Just like today, this opportunity to participate with you, it's a learning experience for me. Give me an opportunity to reflect, 
gives me an opportunity to learn some more. And so it's never over. It's one of those things where um, you have to continue to get better. That's the way a lot of athletes look at that. You know, you keep practicing. You know, it's the only way to get better. You know, you look at your failures as information to help you have better plans the next time. Obviously, think about desired outcomes. And the desired outcome is to be the best version of you. Best version of you is someone that continues to learn. So well said. Now, you mentioned the book, Servant Leadership. What else have you read, watched, or listened to that our listeners should as well, and why? Another book that was really inspirational to me is by Victor E. Frankel. It's Man's Search for Meaning. Mm-hmm. I think as we try to understand who we are, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of times you're looking for things that will help define you over time. When I think about a situation, something needs to be changed. And when you can no longer change a situation, then we are challenged to change ourselves. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, that's part of that search for meaning. Why are we here? What is our purpose? You talked about legacy. What type of legacy would you like to leave? And so that book, I think it's pretty deep. You can get as much out of it as you put into it. So that helps really define meaning. That really was an important book. I mean, I love the Servant Leadership because that's really about serving. Robert Greenleaf wrote the book on Servant Leadership. Okay, wonderful. Now, Earl, you've risen through the ranks of education, in education. If there were something you could change in education, what would that be? This is near and dear to my heart. You know, everybody always thinks about it, like think of it like a pie and everybody gets the equal piece. You know, everybody gets the same slice. And so I'm a big equity versus equality guy. There's not an infinite amount of resources to help students and children and staff. And so it's about equity. It's really something I think is important that we make sure that the kids that need the resources most get them. I think all too often in public education, we're always trying to make sure that everybody gets an equal piece. And that's not really what it's all about. It's really about equity. And in our districts here, we're really good about making sure that the kids that need the resources most get them. You know, one of the districts is a cooperative school district, four towns, they all pay their bill. It doesn't mean that they all get an equal share of every single resource. We look at who needs the resources most. So that's something of public education that's important to me. And I really wish uh, from the top down that that was a focus and it's not always. And it's a big topic, and it's certainly something that deserves longer conversation. But I really appreciate you speaking into that. Now, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? Now, being a coach and being a teacher and a leader, and I think a younger me would need to hear, seek commitment, not compliance. I think a lot of times we have a strong personality and compliance isn't always commitment, whether that's the teachers that work for you, whether that's the kids that play for you, and that's the students in your classroom. You want them to commit to the desired outcomes, not just comply. And I think the other piece is, a younger me, it's probably true about me today too, is to critique with sensitivity. There's a refreshing frankness about the way I go about my business. You know, I tell people what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. I don't make excuses for myself. I don't make excuses for other people. We're in the people business and it's not like the business world, but the measured damage in our business is kids don't get what they need or kids don't necessarily have the opportunities that they should have. So, you know, critiquing with sensitivity is probably something I should have heard a long time ago and probably Mm -hmm. still today for that Mm -hmm. matter. And it takes practice, right? It really does because, as I said earlier, it's urgent work. I don't have a lot of time to dance and go around. And and that's absolutely, this makes sense because you're so time sensitive that it makes sense that this is an area that you need to continue to practice in. Well said. All right. So is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I think one of the things, this is also from Frankel and Man's Search for Meaning. And so everybody always talks about what's normal, right? So we always question Mm -hmm. our reaction to particular situations. And I think one of the things that I found through those readings was abnormal reactions to abnormal situations is normal behavior. 
And so mm. a lot of times we can be awfully critical of ourselves when we're reflecting because we may not have thought that that was a normal reaction to something, but it's normal and it's mm -hmm. okay and you can forgive yourself. I think the other piece is, I know I oversimplify this, but I, I think any challenge or anything that you really want, if you can ask yourself the two questions, did you work as hard as you possibly could and did you want it bad enough? And if you answer those two questions, yes, and I say this to my own two daughters, then you should be comfortable with the outcome, even if you were unsuccessful, because you controlled the variables that were within your power. You worked as hard as you could and you wanted it as much as you could. And I think back to disappointments or things that I was unsuccessful. It's typically one of those two. I know I didn't work hard enough or I know I didn't want it bad enough. And so you got what you deserved in that regard. You know? Thank you so much for those questions. It, it certainly will help us to reflect. And I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. Oh, and I wanted to thank you as well, because the opportunity to really reflect, to really think, a lot of times, you know, life gets fast and work gets fast. And yes. We don't have a vehicle. We don't formalize an opportunity or a way to go back and reflect and think about why we do and how we do what we do. We won't get better. And so that's part of that lifelong learning concept that we talked about briefly and you advocated for. It's, it's important. So thank you. Well, thank you so much, Earl. Have a great day. You too, Lily. Thanks a bunch. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.